Welcome to another Directions Mag podcast, co-hosted with our friends at Eurissa. All right, welcome everyone. I'm Zan Fredericks, one of the past chairs of Eurissa's Professional Education Committee. I work for the U.S. Geological Survey's National Geospatial Program, and I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Cindy Thatcher and Josh Nimitz, to talk about what's new and now in the realm of remote sensing, specifically LIDAR. If if you're unfamiliar with LIDAR, it's an active remote sensing technique similar to sonar or radar, but instead of using sound waves or radio waves, LIDAR uses pulses of light to map the target. Now, I love talking about LIDAR, so thanks Josh and Cindy for joining me today. And to get us started, I wondered if you'd each share a bit of your backgrounds. We'll start with you, Josh. Yeah, thank you, Zan. Uh, so, Presently, I'm with the USGS, National Geospatial Technical Operations Center, as the Senior Elevation Project Lead. Um, and, and the way I describe that position to uh, others is it's kind of a technical program management role uh, for 3DEP with the NG Talk. Uh, prior to joining the USGS in early 2017, I worked for a few different uh, geospatial firms in the private sector. Um, largely focused on aerial, rem aerial remote sensing and data production, as well as supporting uh, field surveying done in support of those aerial remote sensing projects. So uh, my background is primarily in operations, um, spent a lot of time working with various LIDAR sensors in the private sector. And uh, now that uh, I'm, I'm involved on the federal side, working with 3DEP, um, I'm uh, involved in, in helping our uh, operations staff at NG Talk look at the LIDAR data, understand some of the, the variability that we see in the data sets and, and help to, um, help to um, resolve some of the problems that we have in our specifications uh, where we see discrepancies between, let's say, what, um, what our current practice is with respect to LiDAR data sets versus what we may have written in our specifications, there's there's always a need to um, reconcile those differences over time. And so um, I do a lot of things presently, but um, I'm, I'm now on the other side of it with uh, USGS looking at the data, making sure the data is, is suitable for 3DEP um, and um, also uh, have the opportunity to to remain engaged with the private sector as as uh, one of the one of the folks that that gets to work closely with our contractors who are doing the data acquisition and production. So um, that's a little bit about my background, and uh, I'll hand it off to Cindy. Yeah, thanks, Josh, and thanks for having us here today. Um, so I'm a geographer working for USGS. And I'm part of the 3D Elevation Program team, or, or 3DEP. And my job is to help manage the team and develop our annual work plans. And I also focus um, some on topo topobathymetric LIDAR for inland water bodies, um, especially rivers. And as part of that, I try to keep an eye on advances in topobathymetric mapping, um, help figure out which rivers we're going to map each year, and then um, work with our team to make sure the data is published and easily accessible, um, and then coordinate also with um, other federal agencies who are also um, working on um, collecting bathymetry data. 
That's that's some great expertise between both of you, uh, between the advances being made, you keeping an eye on that. And then Josh, you mentioned data suitability and we've been we've been hearing a lot about accuracy lately and with it being so crucial for so many applications, I wonder how has the accuracy of LIDAR both topo and topo bathymetric improved in recent years and what factors do you think have contributed to that improvement? You know, I would have to say first and foremost, the people in the greater geospatial community. Um, there's an ever-growing awareness of both the strengths and weaknesses of LIDAR. And more and more, we are seeing the LIDAR data users who scrutinize the data be more informed and better trained. And through a variety of different feedback loops, the LIDAR data user experience makes its way back to the LIDAR data acquisition and production companies and subsequently back to the sensor manufacturers and software companies. And with 3DAP, USGS plays an important role in uh, kind of um, acting as the hub of that communication. A lot of times we see uh, uh, or we, we hear back from uh, our stakeholders in 3DEP and our users who provide feedback through, say, the National Map Help Desk, identifying something that may be particularly concerning to them in the data. And then um, they let us know and, and that raises our awareness of it. And, and we in turn have a conversation with the data producer who, who um, in some cases, if, if there's an actual sensor related issue, may uh, relay that back to their uh, sensor manufacturers. So uh, there's there's better communication and overall better awareness of what the data is and isn't. Um, so I, I just want to start off with that. I think that um, you know, a vast majority of the folks working with LiDAR data today are so much better informed and educated than they were, say, 10 years ago. Um, and so from there, uh, we, we have that flow of information going um, from the, the data user all the way back to the, the sensor and software companies. On the technical side, I'd say it has to start with the, the GNSS inertial systems that provide, provide the direct georeferencing of, of the point cloud and um, modern survey grade GNSS instrumentation is, is multi-constellation GNSS enabled versus um, 20 so, some odd years ago when uh, commercial LIDAR arena was, was in the early stages in the United States where everybody was reliant on GPS enabled positioning alone. Now we have GPS, we have the Chinese Beidou, the European Galileo, uh, and the Russian GLONASS constellations providing um, simultaneous signals and uh, the receiver, the GNSS receiver technology is, is able to interpret and, and corroborate those signals. And really it's, it's resulting in better positioning overall um, with with faster convergence times, so the ability to resolve a, a, a true position or, or an accurate position in um, a shorter time frame. 
on board the aircraft, the the uh, inertial subsystem, uh, which is made up of the the GNSS receiver, the inertial measurement unit, and onboard firmware, uh, is employing real time common filtering. And I think that the uh, manufacturers of that of that hardware and software are are improving the the algorithms to help uh, mitigate some some characteristics or limitations of of the hardware such as uh, IMU drift I think we're seeing some improvements there and <clears throat> on the software side once the once the trajectory data has been collected we're seeing um, better uh, tightly coupled solutions so the the trajectory the the accuracy of the trajectory in a post-processing environment is is improving all the while with with improvements in algorithms as well um, then there's there's also um, uh, different different gnss observation modalities uh, such as real-time precise point positioning or ppp where um, we're hearing from some of our contractors who work on 3dep uh, are, are no longer finding it necessary to establish static reference stations or base stations on the ground. They can, they can uh, fly independent of base stations on the ground um, and collect very, very good quality trajectory information by employing this real-time PPP um, information. So the, the positioning is getting better. Uh, what we're seeing on the on the lidar sensor side in general is that the ranging precision has come down to um, anywhere from one to three centimeters for large format lidar sensors. So, assuming you have a, a properly calibrated sensor model, if you're looking at a, a set of scanned data on man-made uh, surface such as a parking lot or a road, anywhere. Um, across the, the LIDAR scan, we're seeing vertical variability from, from return to return on, on the order of one to three centimeters, which is, which is very good. Uh, and I think that's pretty consistent across all of the various LIDAR technologies out there. So uh, we're seeing, uh, just to recap briefly, um, better positioning uh, and better ranging precision. And then on the post-processing side, uh, we, we've seen this, there are software uh, packages that are intended to help resolve minor geometric issues in the, in the data um, as far as, uh, let's say, a swath-to-swath -swath alignment check goes. Uh, there may still be residual errors in, in the point cloud stemming from the trajectory solution and the modern software uh, used to resolve some of those issues doing a really really good job of identifying uh, conjugate features and areas of overlapping swath data and uh, identifying the the different uh, angular or linear corrections that are needed to align those swaths and um, the results of that geometric correction process are, are generally pretty good. And so 
we're seeing the even with residual error in in the point cloud affecting the the data internal precision uh, this software is able to resolve a lot of those issues so um, that's a lot I, uh, I rambled a bit there but um, it's a combination of, of you know proper communication making its way to the entities that need to be aware of of issues in the technology uh, and them working to make sure their customers are happy by resolving those issues on the sensor side or on the on the software side uh, better positioning um, technology and better post-processing uh, solutions as well and all of that's making for um, high quality airborne lidar data i mean those are those are some exciting advances, especially with your background having you know been around and seeing it from different perspectives. You talked about increased efficiencies, which was an aspect I hadn't really considered. I've been thinking about it more from a finer data accuracy standpoint rather than that that faster measurement. That's a really really good point. Um, you also mentioned how did you say it? Uh, what the data is or isn't, and and I think that's really important. What what are you trying to map at what scale? Um, I'm guessing. That's a really important question in inland valleys. Cindy, when you were when you work with Topa by the Metric LiDAR, what what kind of considerations need to be made when it comes to accuracy and how how do those expectations differ from Topo LiDAR? Yeah, um, so in general, topobathy LiDAR is a lot more complex. Um, we're doing we've been doing some um, pilot surveys over the past several years to um, acquire topobathymetric LIDAR through commercial mapping companies. And we're trying to better understand how the environmental conditions affect the success of the surveys. And also just gaining more experience with um, doing the data validation process. And um, we've tested uh, surveys with different uh, sensors and different environmental conditions uh, to better understand where the technology performs well and where it doesn't. And um, some factors to consider are um, water clarity, uh, water depth, uh, the type and the brightness of the uh, bottom substrate, you know, the river or whatever the water body is. And then things like air bubbles in the water column where there might be rapids, um, submerged aquatic vegetation, and the presence of algae in the water column, um, all those things can affect the ability of the laser to detect the bottom. And um, so it makes uh, conducting these surveys a lot more challenging, I think, than um, doing a, 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 a topo survey. Um, so we're looking at um, the LiDAR data to see how, how it performs in terms of vertical, vertical accuracy depth penetration and point density. And I think one challenge um, with working with topobathy LiDAR is that for many water bodies, it's just not enough. Um, it, it doesn't give you complete coverage of the entire submerged bottom surface, usually, um, unless the conditions are really good. Um, so you often end up with voids or, or no data in deep areas 
or places um, where the water just isn't clear enough for whatever reason. And so kind of the way to get around that issue, um, the best way really is um, to fill those voids using another technology such as sonar. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot more complex than, than just doing a topo survey. It sure sounds like it. And I, <laughs> I imagine too, when you're, you know, going for inland valley, you said specifically rivers were something that you focus on with that, the changes in turbidity, I've got to think are almost constant, let alone, you know, what seasonality or even, you know, if it was right after a large rain event or something like that. So there, yeah, there are a lot of variables <laughs> that you're working with there. My goodness. Um, Josh, what were you talked earlier a little bit about the different satellites and the different equipment that was providing an opportunity for higher accuracy. What are some notable software tools or are there any data processing techniques that are being used to effectively analyze and assess the LIDAR data now that we've got this ability for higher accuracy? Yeah, there, there are, um, a variety of different software packages available to data producers and data users. Um, many of these have been in use within industry for a long time now. Um, there aren't any uh, major new software packages out there for the typical uh, data producer, data user that come to mind. There, there are newer um, newer software as a service options out there for cloud-based feature extraction. Um, although I don't personally have any experience with those, uh, I know that um, certain certain industries are, are capitalizing on, on uh, those software as a service options. Uh, but, but anyways, um, getting back to the question about um, analyzing and visualizing the LiDAR data, I would say that what we're seeing is an uptick in, in point cloud densities. And so the fidelity of the data is increasing and that is enabling um, that, that geometric correction process that I mentioned in my last response. And so uh, we're seeing the software that's designed to improve the quality of the data is, is maybe uh, more successful because um, of increased point cloud densities um, where um, you know previously with with coarser uh, uh, point cloud data sets it, it might have been more difficult for that software to resolve um, features in overlapping areas or common features in overlapping areas now we have higher densities and and that that actually improves uh, the the geometric correction of the data. So, getting back to the, the the geometric quality of the data, which of course is is so important. Uh, we we want to start with good positional accuracy uh, before we we do anything else with the data. So, um, I'll start there. And then, as far as is analyzing and visualizing the data, um, we're seeing different different techniques for how to load large point cloud data sets into a compute environment. Um, some software packages are very RAM dependent. And so 
the point cloud is is loaded into memory and so as long as you have enough memory um, you can load large amounts of data and work within very rapid fashion and i think um, uh, some of the the key production software packages being used by the data providers uh, work that way we're also seeing more and more um, uh, spatial indexing em employed so whether that's a quad tree or octree spatial indexing um, that's being um, being used uh, either as um, an internal component of the point cloud file so um, most of us are working with LAS or LAZ file formats for Arial LiDAR. And um, you know, these, these um, software packages can uh, embed uh, the spatial indexing information in the, uh, the VLRs or the EVLRs uh, within the LAS file for uh, rapid viewing and um, uh, also for rapid processing. Uh, other software packages may um, may write um, a sidecar file for for spatial indexing, um, but but those are techniques. Those are two techniques. Um, you know, either the RAM or the the spatial indexing option um, to both render and process the point cloud quickly. As far as analyzing the data, this this may sound um, this, this may come across as, as being kind of odd, but we find uh, at USGS that many times the best way to, to get a good holistic look at the point cloud is to actually create derivative rasters. So we actually rasterize the data and we look for um, different characteristics of the data by looking at the raster uh, data sets and not at the point cloud, such as um, the, the data internal precision or the, the inner swath goodness of fit, or we look for noise that may be uh, not properly isolated in the point cloud. We look at um, you know, different raster data sets to identify those. Those are two examples of potential issues in, in a point cloud data. But if you're looking on a on a local level, so if you're looking at a, a specific uh, small geographic extent of the point cloud, um, it's always best to look at the point cloud. There's no there's no substitute for that, and we we do that simply by uh, cross sectioning and uh, rendering a cross section or profile of a point cloud, and looking at um, either the combinations of, of point classification or return information. Um, there's so many different ways to visualize uh, the different uh, characteristics of the point cloud in, in any number of software packages out there. And so um, for project level viewing, we really want to look at the, the raster derivatives to identify patterns in the data. Uh, for local, uh, a local, a local uh, street level view, if you will, of the data, we want to look at the point cloud. So the the raster derivatives are used as a guide to to help um, kind of hone in where it is we need to check the data, and then we look at the data. And honestly, I, I wouldn't want to call out any particular software. There are multiple software packages out there uh, that we 
we actually use several at USGS um, because there is no perfect software package out there. But um, it's a combination of looking at raster derivatives and looking at the point cloud. And I think that's pretty much the way it's been done for a long time now. And um, hopefully I, I touched on those questions um, in, in a good way, Zan. Do you have any other follow-up questions or? No, I thought that was perfect. I especially appreciated you saying there is no perfect software package. It's just what Cindy alluded to earlier, just like LIDAR is not the panacea, right? You sometimes need to couple it with sonar. You need complementary things instead of just trying to rely on one because that will always introduce bias. So I thought I thought that was really well said. Also, I 100% agree. I think you're totally right when it comes to creating a raster to visualize your point cloud just differently. I'll, I'll never forget working on an inland river in the Northeast US and the point cloud looked fantastic, but as soon as you created that raster, it looked awful. So it wouldn't, I would never have thought that it, that's how it would have rendered. And yet that then gave us, you know, the, the impetus to go back to the point cloud and really dig in and identify what was happening. So I, I love that you guys are still creating rasters just to give you a different perspective um, and then two, you mentioned the increased density, uh, but along with that spatial indexing in RAM, because I imagine one without the other wouldn't work. Well, I guess the spatial indexing would still work on low density things, but with that increased density, I can't imagine not having the spatial indexing in order to help that visualization. So I really appreciate your your thoughts on those. Yeah. You also mentioned areas, go ahead. Zan, can I, can I just add one point that I think is pertinent? Um, something else Absolutely. I wanted to bring up with the multiple software packages is that we find that um, not all software interprets the data the same way. And uh, sometimes we find the need to use one software package to troubleshoot an issue in the data that actually may not be an issue with the data. It may be an issue with the way the another software package is interpreting the data. So uh, if we're responding to um, a user uh, user's concern or a partner's concern, and, and I'm speaking as a, um, a member of 3DEP now, uh, we find it often helpful to pull data into different software packages because the data may behave differently or what may register as an error in one software package is not in, in another. And so then, it helps us hone in on the true cause of the problem. Uh, is it problematic data or, or a problematic file formatting, or is it actually potentially an issue with the software? So I just wanted makes, to make that point. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me though. It's kind of like if you, if individuals, if you give them the same data set and they're going to perform a visual QAQC on it, we may have all taken the same QAC, QAQC course teaching us how to do it, but I guarantee we'll each identify different things in the data. Some of them will be the same, but I have a feeling we're all looking at it a little bit differently because our visual acuity is different, how we mentally process what we're looking at. So it makes perfect sense that the softwares would behave similarly. So I just, that's a really good point to make. Yeah, excellent point as well. And so you did mention areas of overlap. Uh, they have, the, we're talking about increased density and my brain was thinking or areas of overlap have the potential for even more increased density. And then Cindy, you talked about 
integrating LIDAR with other kinds of data. In my mind, I'm thinking sonar, for example. So those areas of overlap would be more dense. How, how does the integration of bathymetric data with topographic data contribute to a more comprehensive understanding of landscapes, both above and below the water? Yeah, um, a lot of uh, science applications need continuous data across the land and into the depths of the water bodies. And um, a good, I think the best example is models of the flow of water across the landscape, um, such as storm surge models and any, any type of flood model. And, um, and because of that, we're really seeing a growing interest in um, bathy LIDAR for inland applications. I mean, it's already huge for coastal, of course, um, but for inland areas, um, we're seeing a lot of interest related to flood modeling um, and other topics. Um, like, for example, we know that NOAA is making some really significant investments in acquiring topobathy LIDAR data for rivers. Um, and they're specifically doing that to help improve their flood models. Um, and they're seeing that having bathymetry data really helps improve the accuracy of flood predictions. Um, and it, where they don't have bathy data um, in flood models, what they do is um, either leave out the, the river channel morphology, or they just estimate that from um, the surrounding landscape. They estimate the shape and the depth, depth of the channel. But obviously, it's it's much better to have real bathymetry data. Um, another key application we're seeing is um, related to fish habitat restoration, um, especially for salmon on the West Coast, where it's listed as an endangered species. Um, some other examples are um, mapping rivers pre and post dam removal. Um, there's some pretty pretty big uh, dam removal projects happening in the United States, or or they're planned, and we really need to better understand how the river is going to change when all that sediment that's stored behind the dam is released. Um, I think another interesting recent example is the Potomac River Survey. Um, in that one. Our funding partner is using the data for modeling um, toxic spills that could affect um, the drinking water intakes for the DC area. And um, kind of uh, the data integration part is um, interesting. Um, so ideally, you know, if you're using a topobathy LIDAR system, um, it's using a green laser that can penetrate the water. Um, and that's different from a topo system where the red laser is usually absorbed at the water surface. And so, um, you know, a lot of newer topobathy sensors um, have a depth penetration of sometimes up to 30 meters or even beyond if the conditions are perfect and the, the water is really clear. Um, and so, but at the same time, most of these systems can also um, map the surrounding topography of the land areas at the same time. And so this is really helpful um, for mapping shorelines and for ensuring that the, the digital elevation models 
are a continuous elevation surface that transitions really cleanly between the dry ground and the submerged topography. Um, so that's a, a really huge advantage of the technology. Um, I think another uh, advantage of um, LIDAR in, uh, in aquatic environments is um, safety. Um, so if you're doing boat-based sonar surveys, you know, it works great um, until you start getting into really shallow water. And then you're worried about, um, you know, the danger factor for boats operating close to the shoreline or in rocky, shallow water. And it just so happens that have, is the environment where LIDAR technology works best, you know, that shallow near shore environment. But yeah, just in general, it's a great technology that gives you um, a nice integrated um, water and land surf, um, land elevation. So. I think I'll stop there. I just, you make a really good point about that narrow swath width with the sonar, you know, in shallower depths, because not only from a safety standpoint, but I've got to think from a, a resource standpoint, the amount of boat time, those, those track lines would have to be so close together in order to get complete coverage that I've got to think from that lots of people are very grateful for the LiDAR technology when it comes to, you know, budgets. By themselves yeah that's so true yeah it gets sonar gets so inefficient in shallow water and yet it blows lidar out of the water right no pun intended well maybe a little <laughs> intended but when it comes to really deep that makes perfect sense that the marrying of those two technologies there's a time and place for it it's kind of like josh almost what you were saying earlier like what can the data do and what it can't right what can this sensor do and what it can't so it's a it's a good example of how these evolvements, how these innovations in the technology in the sensor realm are really helping increase the densities of data as well as increase the efficiencies on how we can collect the data and having those integrated data sets sounds like it is. You mentioned improving accuracy of flood predictions or the Potomac River survey. Those are both, those have huge implications for people. And I think it's wonderful that we're getting these data out there for them. Josh, how does the accuracy assessment differ for integrated data sets? Does it, or do they use different standards and specifications? Yeah, that's a really good question, Zan. I think it it ultimately depends on the, the primary user of the data and what their requirements are. Um, you know, we've, we've been involved in conversations where a user may may choose to prioritize um, one one data set over another independent of any absolute positional accuracy checks that have been done um, so what i mean by that is you may have one data set uh, that that checks well to um, uh, an independent control network and and that is how we check the vertical accuracy of airborne LIDAR, right? We use checkpoints. Um, but sometimes um, a user may want to deprioritize the checkpoints and prioritize a, a, a surface uh, established from the, the other data set that's being integrated. And so you, you bring these two data sets together so that there's goodness of fit between them. You kind of disregard the positional accuracy of, of 
one data set from the checkpoints. So it really it really depends on on um, users' priorities. I would say for integrating topo topographic and bathymetric data, that best practice is to uh, control the control that process by um, holding the the topo lidar constant and moving the bathymetric data to it because we know the bathymetric data whether it's whether it's um, from lidar or collected from acoustic technologies is going to have more error so um, you know it depends uh, we've seen uh, integration of let's say uh, airborne and mobile based lidar data uh, and I've I've heard of uh, different scenarios where the mobile lidar is moved to the aerial lidar and vice versa. And so, when when you are moving one data set to another, uh, something's going to be compromised. You know, typically, it's it's not. I should say it's it's not typical for both data sets to be tied perfectly well to the same control network. So. Um, you may have to yep. compromise positional accuracy of one to make it match the other. Sure. I, I can only imagine the variables that need to be considered, right? Especially imagine if they're not even collected at the same time. <laughs> right there, it starts to deviate in my mind. So that's a really right. good point. Um, and so, Cindy, we were just talking about accuracy assessments for integrated data sets, but I wondered, are there other con considerations when using LIDAR, whether topo or topo body, that need to be made? Um, yeah, I guess let's talk about from the topo bathy LIDAR perspective. Um, so um, one issue is that LIDAR systems are designed and, and flown to meet eye safety standards. And normally the laser is not detectable on the ground, except maybe at night if you're really watching for it. Um, so from that point of view, there's a limitation on how powerful the laser, the laser can be in order to in ensure eye safety. Um, but there's really no impact on people or the environment um, in terms of using this technology. And most people wouldn't be aware that the survey is even even happening um, because the plane is you know a couple thousand feet above ground level minimum. Um, so no, I don't really think there's any major considerations other other than that eye safety factor. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. uh, Josh, what are some resources or organizations if people want to learn more? Um, where can they turn? to for further learning or to stay up to date with the latest standards or specifications or developments in the field? Oh yeah, there's there's more and more resources out there. It's it's so great to see our our industry as a whole is growing. Um, there's there's far more interest in geospatial uh, these days and it's and it's trending in the right direction as as um, I think more and more communities of practice are realizing the benefits of geospatial data and how geospatial data can help them. So uh, we're seeing a continuance of, of organizations like ERISA and ASPRS. Um, 
certainly looking at publications like Directions Magazine and uh, LIDAR Magazine and, and other uh, widely available publications um, that um, are either free or, or at a low cost are great sources of information for uh, new technology and case studies and um, the other thing is, of course, conferences. There are multiple geospatial conferences uh, throughout the country or, uh, over the course of the year. And um, I would say when and where possible, it is always really good for folks to attend those, not only to hear uh, from, from the presenters, uh, but to network and to have conversations with, with um, peers and and uh, others uh, who are working with the data to, to learn about their, uh, their successes and their trials with the data. Uh, really, uh, the more people can expand their network and um, learn from, from others who are working with geospatial data, uh, the better everyone will be. Um, I've, I've learned so much in, in my career uh, just from talking to people. Um, that is my, my number one recommendation. And now um, many of the conferences that may have in the past been um, attainable only in person are uh, available uh, with virtual options as well. It makes it a little bit easier for folks to participate. So um, when and where possible, please, uh, Please make it a point to expand your network and, and reach out to people on LinkedIn and, and attend those conferences and, of course, read, read those publications and just stay engaged. There, there are national and, and regional uh, organizations that, that are doing really good work um, in, in regards to um, you know, geospatial data knowledge. I love that encouragement. I, I agree. I it all comes back in my mind to the people. We're we're mapping what we map in order to make assessments to help people. Um, and also to your point, I can't think of a better way of staying up to date with the innovations. Right? What's new and now is staying in tune with that network and making a network. I we can all learn from each other, and I think that's a great way of going forward. And it's so nice to have someone that you can reach out to when you, you're stymied, right? You see something in the data you've never seen before. It's really nice that there are other people out there that may have had a similar experience. So to wrap things up, I wonder what each of you find most exciting about the new and now developments, if you will, in remote sensing, specifically in the context of LiDAR. Uh, Cindy, let's start with you. Oh, sure, yeah. I think just in general, the improvements in LiDAR sensors and data processing techniques over the past several years have just been amazing. Um, you know, we're seeing on the on the Bathy side, we're seeing more powerful sensors that can penetrate to deeper depths and able to work in water that's not, not all that clear, which is really helpful. Um, or, you know, seeing higher density data, which is super useful for our, our user community that really needs a lot of, of, uh, of detail to do their analyses. And, um, and all, we're also seeing that um, the vertical and horizontal accuracy of all types of LiDAR data is really becoming 
very good, um, easily exceeding our requirements uh, most of the time. And um, I guess um, Josh just was mentioning conferences. And um, last week, Josh and I were both at the Jobletex conference, which, which stands for Joint Airborne Ladder Bathymetry Technical Center of Expertise. Um, we were at that workshop. And um, we saw some really interesting work happening um, in, in the mapping world and um, focusing on bathymetry in particular. Um, there was uh, some really exciting research on satellite drive bathymetry and the use of um, the ISAT2 data for validating or calibrating bathymetry data and just all kinds of um, new science and management applications for the data that were really inspiring to see. So, I love that in the sense that we it shows how these sensors can be complementary instead of competing technologies. And I think that's a wonderful way of looking at it to move forward. Again, this integration will certainly help everyone out there. So Josh, what about you? What do you find most exciting about the new and now developments going on? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to echo a lot of what Cindy just said. I'd, I'd say first and foremost, the quality of the data. Uh, there's there's just a better awareness of of um, lidar data quality, and again, that that communication has been happening for years between the data users and the data producers and the manufacturers of the hardware and the software, and and all of that has led to an improvement in quality. And with that improved quality people are able to rely on the data more. Uh, we're seeing definite increases in fidelity of data, so increased point cloud densities and, and better modeling and feature extraction coming from that. And, and um, along with that increased fidelity, we're, we're seeing uh, more focus on three-dimensional positional accuracy. Um, we've always, tested the vertical accuracy of LiDAR data with checkpoints, um, but there's more and more discussion now about how do we, how do we know how uh, well this point cloud ties to um, a, a real world reference system in 3D space. And we, we can do that with increased point cloud density. Um, so that increased positional accuracy enables uh, the the engineering and uh, the, the engineering disciplines to rely on the data more um, than perhaps they they otherwise would and I, I did want to also um, just touch on that that idea of of data corroboration so Cindy mentioned the the Atlas laser on the ISAT two uh, spaceborne system and we have these different collection modalities, uh, whether it's uh, ground-based or, or aerial-based or space-borne. Uh, and over time, it's going to be to everyone's advantage to have different elevation data, or different, uh, different geospatial data collected from remote sensing that can be used to evaluate the, the quality of the data. Um, so having that multi-temporal, multi-modality uh, concept really, really enables uh, data verification 
And again, that will help us to rely on the data more. If we, if we have two different elevation data sets collected over time from different platforms that generally agree well with each other, um, we can, we can, well, a user will have more confidence in working with either of those two data sets. Uh, likewise, where we see changes due to um, uh, engineering or, or uh, natural uh, landscape changes, um, having different, different data sets uh, be very useful for change detection. So I think that the, the next phase of, of 3DEP is going to be focused on that. Um, where, where are we seeing change and how can we use multi-temporal LiDAR data sets to evaluate that change? That's so important, especially as we move forward uh, with, with, like you were saying, with the new modalities as well as the new minds that are joining our field every day, new people coming in, whether they're students or just early career professionals. I'm intrigued how the current technology will serve as a springboard, right? I'm excited to see what's, what's developed in the future. So Cindy and Josh, thank you so much for such an enlightening conversation about what's new and now in the realm of LIDAR. Thank you.